Hello again, everybody. It's um, Jason Powers. I don't know how long the stream will be, or when I say stream or a podcast will be, but uh, I titled this one um, about uncertainty. So, one of the things, and this is a goes back to some of the uh, NLP that I learned a long time ago. Well, learned and forgotten, and haven't really touched in several years, or you know, it's. It, it, it served its purpose for the time being. Of, but I remember um, there's different things people look for in their life. We all prioritize values. You know, uh, I would say I prioritize liberty and uh, above all, liberty and freedom. You know, the ability to do um, what one wants to do. I think that's a, a, a very high value in my own life. But uh, going to the... NLP, there was uh, six different, and they're paired up together. Some people want, you know, variety. Other people want certainty, um, love, and then, you know, there's various, all these different various values, and there's a, a counterbalance to everything. There's trade-offs, you know. Um, you know, if you are, if you prioritize in life that you want lots of variety, but then you also want a great deal of certainty. Uh, well, that's going to be a very conflicting situation because those two things, uh, well, it, it, I'm sure they come together in, in some certain circ circumstances. Um, certainty of outcome. So, you know, for example, variety of trades. So this is what I, I guess what's driving this thought is um, think of like um, financial dealings. So people, you know, want to be uh, attached to a variety of ventures, uh, but they want the certainty that they're all going to be successful. So how do they get certainty? You know, they usually cheat or um, get inside information, or they're just hella good at uh, making sure that everything is done a certain way. They, they've mapped out a roadmap, they've done it before, and they figure they can do it again. However, every every business or operation uh, would present a, a challenge, pre presents different challenges. But this is why um, in many cases, you know, people look at Elon Musk as, you know, this great serial entrepreneur because of PayPal and X and Tesla and, uh, you know, now Twitter or X again, uh, SpaceX, I uh, was talking about initially. And, I'll give him credit for at least dealing with things that are tangible, except for I wouldn't think Twitter is really tangible, but at least the idea that there is a, um, there's a supply chain, there's uh, inventory, there's people, things that you have to uh, engineer, design, put together. And of course, you know, then you got to make a profit out of that. That being said, he's subsidized uh, substantially in all those industries by the government and he wouldn't be where he is if it wasn't for a lot of um, things that he's obviously made deals on uh, that we don't even know about uh, or certain um, unwritten deals that he has uh, going on in his life. So so that's what I'm saying with uh, certainty. Well, the, the reason why people uh, choose, you know, the stock market is you can get massive returns off of it. However, 
as we found out, and uh, uh, there's a podcast recently with Tucker Carlson. He was talking with the Wolf of Wall Street. Um, I forget his name. Off uh, Jordan Belfort. Um, uh, his, uh, you know, he t- he talks about really. There's no way. Uh, it's there's hardly any way that you can beat the the S and P 500 on a regular basis without having you know some kind of uh, foreknowledge because it just uh, even the best managers can't really outdo them do that particular um, market, but it's boring. You know, nobody wants nobody's going to pay you to just invest in the standard poor five uh, standard poor five hundred um, um, spider or whatever ETF or whatever it's called. Um, sorry, I just <laughs> I'm not invested. Go figure. I'm not exactly sitting sitting in a good financial circumstance. But no one's going to pay you to, you know, put your money in something that they could just do themselves. They wouldn't pay you to be this, uh, you know, person who has this great knowledge. And, you know, what he was saying is, is you just uh, the typical it would it's a rare it's it's like a one in a thousand or maybe one in 10,000 chance that somebody can do that all the time and be uh, better than the market without, you know, playing fair playing the market straight up. It's just like like a casino. It's just like being at the blackjack table. And we know the house has an advantage. Uh, you're uh, going against the odds, and you may be, may be able to beat it in a night, maybe even beat it for a week. But if you play it for an entire year, more likely not, you're going to lose your, lose your shirt. Um, you know, that's just the way it is. So he was getting to the fact that there's lots of uh, cheats and people that are uh, front-running trades because they know the outcome. They, they've already gar- garnered the certainty of certain things going to happen or they know uh, what's going to happen based upon what they've already triggered in, in place of it. You know, they know how to get in and out of positions because they know what's going on because they're involved with politics or they're involved with the company. It's insider trading. Um, but we don't prosecute that anymore. We don't prosecute a lot of things anymore. So that's uh, that's where I'm going with the un, the uncertainty. Uh, so uncertainty, um, the way I'm looking at it, is in a more of a uh, political uh, thing um, uh, application. D- just bear with me here. So let's just go back to 2016 because that's a that's actually a very good marker. It was actually actually I could call it the midpoint of this massive change that has gone on when I say midpoint, we'll say the 2008 financial crisis was the really the beginning of the beginning of all this, what we're going through right now. We're at the, we're at the end of this uh, final chapter of the, the fourth turning. So, you know, last 16 to 18 years, 2024, 2008, 16 years, but 2016, was the the chapter that was the a pivotal point in American history. We know why. We know there's an election. One of the things that's really bothered these people in our intel, military, state department and all this uh, apparatus, especially with regards to Trump and internationally is that he's an uncertain character. He's of an uncertain character too, but he has uncertainty when it comes to dealing with foreign policy. As much as they say they know this and they've analyzed him and this, that, and the other thing, 
what they really don't know is how he'll respond to um, certain aggression or whatnot. And that may, you know, they, they may have said they've uh, got this all figured out, but what they really couldn't do is goad him into going into further wars. And that pissed them off. Because, uh, you know, prior to that, for honestly, you could just go back to about, well, I mean, you could technically go back to LBJ, but uh, as far as wars are concerned. But let's just say, you know, uh, the second term of Reagan. So we got ourselves involved with, uh, you know, Iran Contra various uh international um situations i I don't remember very much about the war but iran iraq happened in the 80s uh we had lots of lots of gun running lots of different military operations that were going on off the books so basically the mid 80s let's just say that so from the mid 80s to 2016 that's 30 years that was 30 years of military adventurism that many people don't have a very good idea what was going on. I mean, yeah, we understand Iraq one, Iraq two, Afghanistan, but all the other ones like Yemen and Libya and all the other various points on the globe, uh, the middle East, uh, beyond the middle East in Africa, uh, probably some in South America too, um, little skirmishes, but particularly Africa and the middle East, uh, were, you know, uh, the focal point. A lot of it had to do with they wanted to keep uh, um, Russia um, pinned in. I mean, our neocons are obsessive about Russia and having skirmishes and or having uh, conflicts with, you know, Syria and, and Iran and Iraq and having all these things close enough by Afghanistan, uh, keeping these things going. And, and Afghanistan served its purpose you know, because it's right the underbelly of Russia. Um, and that was a, it's very interesting how we back, you know, got out of there. And within, from the time of August 2021, and that that was not done, uh, the way that was done was intentional. But I think there was a lot more to it than just the intention, intentional, uh, intentionality of it. God, I can't even say the word I'm trying to think of um, or say it. Um uh, because all we did was pivot, and, and and this has been overlooked, but it happened just briefly. Uh, we did mess around in Kazakhstan, and then we went to then, then we had the issue with uh, Ukraine, or you know, Ukraine war in February. So it was only what you know, September, October, November, December, January. You know, six months, ostensibly six months of time between you know, uh, a, a painful you know, unnecessary loss of life, at least. I mean, the thing is, is, uh, you know, and, and I'm, I'm not being, um, you know, a glib about this, or I, it was 13 Americans, and it was tragic. Um, and loss of life is always terrible, and it was needless. And there were lots of other uh, losses of life. And, uh you know, we don't even know what's going on in Afghanistan. We don't know how many people were left behind. We don't know how many Afghanis got brought into the United States, you know, and, and since then. So many of these questions, this is this is this goes to the uncertainty of this administration, which is uh, what I'm getting back to with Trump. His uncertainty of foreign policy and his way of handling things were just at a complete 180 of, way things had been handled under um, 
the prior 30 years. Uh, the warmongering and, and I mean, he, he said things and that's where the thing is. He said a lot of things and these people don't understand people saying things because the people in the West are very, very, um, well, for one thing, they, they just make, uh, make mountains out of molehills. Uh, there are things that, you know, when someone says something, you know, you, you're supposed to take them at their word. But with Trump, you already knew he was a salesperson. You know, he's kind of a blowhard. You've always known he's been a blowhard. So, I mean, the the, the aspects of this where these people have over uh, they they I, it makes you wonder if they really believe the, the the sauce they were selling everybody. But it seems after a while they've taken on the aspects of actually, you know, when I say about it, the the power structure of actually, um, you know, swallowing the propaganda they they spewed out. But they were definitely looking for. Um, they were they, they they're so used to certainty when it comes to warmongering, but they also know they would always know what the game plan was. They knew how to invest. They knew how to uh, make money off of it. Obviously, uh, whether it be the foreign policy aspect, which was mainly tied to your cons- neoconservatives, we call them neoconservatives. They're not conservative really in anything. A lot they're just uh, uh, you know reactionaries or agitators or. They're not, they don't conserve anything. They spend money like it's water. They don't care about deficits. They've shown, you know, anyway, I've, I've never found myself uh, aligned with these people at all. You know, their ideology, their, their belief system is askew on so many levels. They don't understand uh, those of us who see this military adventurism as just uh, a assured way to destruction. And it's killed off every other empire as well. At some point, you lay down the sword and you worry about developing your own civilization, your own infrastructure, your own way of life. Uh, And we had that, really, even after World War II. But certainly going between the late 1880s to 1950, America was unmatched. Let's just say we were unmatched. We spent 70 years... Um, the, the biggest problem was, is that we had people who are craven exploiters and they installed this enormous, uh, welfare state, just like Bismarck, just like all the uh, European. And now it's rotted and it's an infection and people had better, better realize that they're never going to see their social security. I hate to be the bearer of that bad news, but 10 years from now, you're not going to see it. I guarantee it. I'll put that up. Well, they already said it was going to go bankrupt in the 2030s anyway. Well, the national debt is going up so astronomically fast that now you'll never get it. You're just never going to get it. So all the people who pay into it, I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry with you. (laughs) I paid into it too. Uh, But you're never going to uh, get anything out of it. So there, there is something that you were certain of because... Uh, the program was established back when people lived a lot lo- longer, a lot less longer. So it was probably, I think the average age was right around 65 in, in the 1930s. I know it certainly was around 50. And I'm not going to go into the discussion of that. I've had people go, well, you're done. You don't understand how they measure this. Like, I don't care. That's what, that's what all measurement is of, of uh, age, uh, average age. But I've, 
I've had uh, conflict with some people for this. So anyway, with 65 around then, and that's basically how they established the, the retirement age. Think of it as like the median. They figured, well, they'll by 65, half the people that should should receive it will have perished and the other people that live on beyond that, you know, and then of course they established uh, parameters for you to receive your retirement early in, later on. I mean, my grandparents did, uh, my mom did, she got her, uh, got, uh, four months, well, five months of uh, social security payments from February to June of uh, 2011. Uh, I put in um, for emergency. It'll pay for a funeral. That's what, it, that's what she uh, managed to amass from that, uh, uh, social security, uh, by putting it in for her. So, you know, other people, you know, they're, they're expecting to get their thousand or 1500 or whatever, whatever the maximum, uh, amount they can make uh, or get out of that, uh, down the road. Of course, if the dollar's worthless, which it will be, I can guarantee that. I definitely can guarantee that you've already lost upwards of 98% of the value of it, uh, May even be, we might be getting closer to 99% at this point, uh, compared to 1913. And this is what happens when you decouple and use fiat currency, go off state gold standard, don't have a, have a tangible anchoring to something like that. And people always complain. They're the people that say, well, if you do the anchoring to the uh, gold, then your inflation will be very low. Yeah, your inflation will be very low because it's if it's completely 100% anchored to gold, then the only way you can expand your money is through the expansion of uh, mining of gold. And roughly speaking, I guess it's somewhere around 1% to 2% of, of additional produ- production of gold per year. And then you got gold that gets produced for uh, making, um, you know, jewelry and whatnot that goes into that too. So it's not at all uh, used as central bank currents or central banking uh, ability, which of course, that's why we don't want a central bank. Um, uh, the ability to make banking operations means, yeah, there's going to be risk and people don't want risk. They want certainty. And of course, as long as the bank invests in uh, responsible projects and and the like, they can usually make a, a, a decent profit. So there used to be the thing called analysis and people had to legitimately write up business plans and had to come up with a legitimate way to uh, achieve their goal and all this thing, all these things and had to have great ideas and bankers wouldn't just fund anything. And it had nothing to do with the person's race. I'm sure uh, if, if people don't realize this back in the 1920s and 30s, um, the, uh, the Negro leagues existed, the entire Negro leagues. Uh, there were, there were times when they were putting more people in the, the stands than the, the, the white major leagues were, especially if it was Washington, DC, if you've heard of the Homestead Grays, they shared the same park with Clark Griffin in the, what was it? The Washington, what well, at the Washington senators at that time, um, it was the nationals, but, uh, what I'm getting at is, is that businesses, however they were financed, and I'm sure there was a lot of uh, shady financing back then, you know, running numbers, that was a thing back then, basically a lottery, Uh, hooch, moonshine, uh, extravagant drugs, things that were on the market, things that we don't know about, I mean, um, all these things. So 
Uh, and so the baseball became kind of like a laundering enterprise, taking, you know, money that they may have made one place, invest in baseball and clean the money. That was a possibility of, of uh, some of these uh, sports teams and sports teams that has been used to, uh, uh, and I'm going off on a tangent here, but sports teams usually don't uh, report profits and a lot of owners have used them as a way to uh, book tax losses and, and, and the like. Uh, there's different, you know, it, it's, you're only limited by the creativity of your accountant and lawyers in that regard. But getting back to the investment part of this, banking is, you know, having decentralized banking helps because yes, it's more risky, but then again, people have a more tangible relationship with their banker. They have to get to know you. The banker has to get to know all of the depositors, has to get to know the people who are located locally, a local bank could be, you know, if you get good people running a local bank and they knew how to uh, um, set up their operations and and keep money pumping, cycling through a community. Because what it boils down to is if a community has a lot of money or uh, let's just say the, the, note, the note is just a store about, you know, it, it serves its purpose. Is this so you don't have to carry around gold, but it's backed by gold? But if a local bank can get a high velocity of money circulating, that generates your GDP. That's what makes that's what makes an economy go is the number of turns, like inventory, that money goes through in a, a cycle of a year. Um, that's what, uh, uh, matter of fact, that goes back to uh, Mister. Um, can't think of his name off the David. Um, oh, the guy who uh, came up with the Great Taking. David Webb. I couldn't think of his last name because Webb is a very common name. So David Webb, he, that was part of his thing with, you know, the velocity of money, the money, you know, the amount of money in the system and velocity equals your GDP. So to get a higher GDP, you can either pump more money into the system or you can get more turns or more velocity. And typically, historically speaking, it's uh, it's been over two. And right now it's down around 1.1 or 1.2. Uh, it's fallen dramatically in, in, in particular since the late 90s. I think in the late 90s, it was up around 1.7. I could go look at this chart he put together. What I'm getting at is, is yeah, from a banking standpoint, the certainty comes from good operations and funding good businesses and then having people uh, work locally to create a system, a self-generating system. Of course, they're going to have interactions with other communities and internationally potentially, uh, but uh, the operations that are funded and the businesses that were funded have to operate on a local uh, basis and the, the people stay in the community and they help uh, help the economics of the community. That happened in, as a matter of fact, it goes back to what I was talking about with the baseball system. So uh, the uh, Negro Leagues, uh, they they weren't just it wasn't just about the baseball team it was about you know other businesses many of these many of these operators of uh, teams uh, were multiple or multi tier entrepreneurs running a bar maybe running a a dance hall um, music jazz they were in the entire entertainment complex but they would they were you know and they were using their connections and they were uh, you know. There's a reason why they were 
stationed in big big metropolitan areas obviously that helped i mean being stationed in harlem or uh new jersey or uh detroit i mean there was there were major operations in the negro leagues in all the metropolitan areas generally speaking so have enough clientele have enough variety of uh businesses that you're involved in uh support and backstop them and then have people that are good at you know handling the the uh, money and the operations and making sure the money stays local and stays in the pockets of the community. So, you know, you know, the janitor that would, you know, work at the, down the street at the library and bring his money to the ball game and pay his 50 cents or whatever to uh, attend. And then that money uh, goes back into the community and circulates back around. Uh, the number of turns makes a big difference in how well that community operate. I'm sure if we get down to the nuances of it, that you can tell a lot about a community based upon the uh, amount of localism that takes place instead of this internationalism. Because when you have international movements of money, it takes longer, the cycle is longer, that thus the, the velocity is slower. I would, I, I'm hypothesizing, but that's my theory, uh, because I'm thinking if your supply chain is six weeks or longer, I mean, and then you take the time it takes to the money in that particular area to uh, um, go around uh, overall the the amount of turns for a particular um, network is going to be very low versus a local business where I would think you know I can see four turns or five turns or six turns about every two months where something that's a long and drawn out and long supply chains oh it may be just in time by the way in terms of how the how the, the product flows but the money doesn't flow. Money doesn't flow quite like that. So I think the money is always lagging in that in that particular system. And I know I'm talking about complexities here, but that's what I'm talking about with certainty too. Uncertainty with uh, Trump. These people, there's their money was impacted. They're used to their money flowing a certain way, and he interrupted that, and that really pissed these people off. I think it pissed off, well, definitely DC. But also picked off, uh, pissed off some of the, there's some of their Chinese clientele. I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking that there's a lot more to it that we don't. I mean, somebody would have to be very close to a, a number of people that are very close to both sides to s truly understand uh, the level or uh, uh, what they really thought. I'd love to hear these people in private talk about him. And the thing is, is it, aside from this leaves aside all his other baggages and everything else, because I'm focusing on um, the uncertainty of his policies and how that impacted them, the uncertainty uh, that uh, uh, causes people to expect ways to circumvent the system, that kind of stuff. Um, and that's where I was going with the, the analogy with the banking sector is that uh, uh, I mean, it's much like the, the stock market. Um, being able to put firm bets in um, has a lot to do with your success um, and the assurity that they're going to pay off the way you expect them to. You know, um, when you're dealing with things like, like I said, this is information tied to, by the way, all this is information. Um, it has very you know, uh, people, uh, will use, use information to achieve goals that they wouldn't get through 
uh, couldn't achieve through actual elbow grease and hard work and uh, improving a process, improving a manufacturing process or a service process or whatever it is. Uh, they, they get their improvements or they get their uh, leg up through information. And that can only go so far because eventually everybody else can eventually get the information you're getting or know that you're getting. And then, then it goes back to, is your process any good? your service process or your manufacturing or your logistics process and those other uh, other uh, competitors in this fictitious kind of concept whether no matter what it is are, are going to uh, then beat you but you know that's why that's why lawfare exists that's why uh, people that are doing that kind of cheating with the information will then intentionally sabotage, do sabotage of other people's operations and businesses through unscrupulous means. And we know what they are. There's so many of them. Um, or we know they exist. Let's put it that way. We may not know what all of them are, but you get what I'm getting at. Thus, they throw, uh, you know, they cast out on that business. And then that generates uncertainty in the public. So they don't want to um, achieve or don't want to help that company out and so that person who uh you know doesn't have a better process is a competitor um but gets better results because they use information war uh information warfare tactics not only to achieve their goals for a direct um, a funding of their operations or direct uh, improvement investment but they also sabotage everybody else around them well that's where we're at kind of in this country um we've been sabotaged we have people who, you know, they'll just cheat and, you know, and it doesn't, it isn't even tied to a, you know, political party, but they will just, they don't improve anything. And that's where, you know, that's the whole uh, printing paper to, uh, to achieve your ends instead of uh, actually creating something useful that people will buy or uh, consume or want to invest in and then create the like I said the velocity of money and time you know velocity of time in 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 a uh, situation like that so that goes to it too is that time is money so the more time a person or more time your customers will spend with you we know that for a fact on your sites or whatever the more likely it is that you're going to turn that into a sale or turn that into a, a, a long-term relationship. And that goes, that's, that's another part of this. So what am I getting at with the titling? I said, uncertainty becomes a friend. Well, these people are uh, fast uh, taking us towards a cliff, a cliff of, you know, various crises that they, they aren't going to, uh, um, you know, give us a chance to get around. Hold on a second here. So, uh, they're eventually going to, you know, crash this. Um, but these people are not very careful. And I'm thinking there's going to be a point, and I don't know what that point is. I can't define exactly how it will present itself. But, Everybody should be very aware. There'll be a point where they'll they'll make such a um, 
such a mistake or such a obvious error or the, something that's obvious, so obvious that even people who are against you right now, when I say against you, uh, they're just, they don't, they don't have the same belief system you do or don't have the same ideology, but it's, it should be very visible to them it, it, when this happens or whatever they do, you need to make it, make it very clear to the people that have been, let's just say less than on your side. You say, say, see, see what I'm saying? This is exactly what I'm talking about. Here's the instance. This is exactly what I'm getting. That's what I've been trying to tell you this whole time. Something along that lines. That's what you're going to have to. And I'm not saying you're going to convince them then, but uh, that's your. That's one of your uh, things that you have to do is woo over anybody who is uh, who hasn't uh, um, stopped drinking the Kool Aid or stop dreaming. I, I, you know, that dilute living in a delusion. Um, this goes to, uh, I was listening to a little bit of a podcast tonight and it was an older podcast, but it still applies as McCur- uh, general McGregor, uh, general Douglas McGregor was talking about, you know, the Russian Ukraine, uh, conflict and, and, and the wider conflicts that are going on and continue to gr- grow in size and scope around the world, little uh, patches. And then he, he say, we have people that just, they, they're just pumping sunshine and rainbows up everybody's ass. And he's right. You know, they, we don't have the, we don't have the capability of uh, going to any kind of uh, uh, long or prolonged battle. Um, there are ways to win a what I call a war with China, a cold war at this point, and we need to keep it that way, uh, because we don't have the capabilities and we don't have the leadership and we don't have the, we don't have the uh, will of the people to do this and. And people say, well, you're just abandoning your allies. Well, you know what? Our allies have already abandoned us. And they have, uh, you know, we're not dealing with people in Europe that are rational enough. I mean, not the people themselves, but the people that are, you know, they sponsor the WEF. There's a reason why von der Leiden goes to the WEF. And uh, I have uh, looked into that even further. I just did an analysis tonight that kind of will... Uh, shine a, a, a bigger idea of how much power this, uh, you know, or uh, let's just say an, a, a perceivable power um, partnering with certain people in the number of partners. So uh, Klaus has amassed a, a, a out of the top, uh, the global 500, the top 500 companies by revenue in 2023, he has 132 of them at, at the forum. And the remaining uh, out of 1,060 corporations, I would say, I'm just ballparking here, probably three or 400 of them, you know the name, would not even, they're not in the top of global 500, but a lot of that's due to China's rise. And uh, he still has uh, uh, deep connections to China uh, through his form. I think probably I would say about 20 or 30 of those uh, companies appear in both lists that I'm talking about. But uh, uh, what I'm getting at is uh, it's the perceivable power. And and a matter of fact, it just, uh, it's more, it's self uh, delusional for these people. That's, I mean, because for what I just did, I'm sure they have all kinds of, uh, what do you call it, uh, metrics and measurables to show the growth and the expansion and the, 
the uh, interconnectivity and how is when you're talking about like they they were responsible this group that he has amassed under his uh, tutelage uh, that are partners with him. Uh, it was uh, the on the revenue side, it was right around fourteen trillion dollars worth of sales. And the global GDP is right around a hundred was a hundred one uh, trillion in uh, twenty twenty two. So I mean that's you know we'll just call it fourteen percent. I mean it's a nice round number. And I mean, are, is every dollar you know uniquely separate from each other? Of course not. But what I'm saying, these companies that he and that's not accounting all the other companies on his list, which I would think it probably would uh, the remaining. 900 companies would probably double that. So we're talking about roughly a quarter of, I'll say a quarter of the the world's GDP he has uh, amassed under his umbrella uh, that are, you know, uh, partners that are certainly aware of their, uh, they provide funding to him and they show up at Davos. I don't know. I would say probably only what the top 50 or 100. And don't get me wrong, out of the top 10 or the top 10 largest by revenue, global 500, uh, I think he had eight of them. So eight of the top 10, probably 12 of the top 20. I'd have to go look at the list real quick. But a substantial, you know, you know, the big ones, you know. And there was two that aren't on either list or aren't on the uh, BlackRock and State Street are not listed as uh uh, by revenues because they they're asset managers, but they do you know make uh, money or profits off their uh, asset management business, and they do they operate as what's called a kirikitsu. I think that's the right how I pronounce it. Uh, Japanese um, use cross ownership, so BlackRock can be considered like one step above one level above that. I'm sure the Japanese got a new name got a name for that too. But, you know, we're like Sony or um, not Sony, but um, say Toyota yeah, owns a certain percentage of, uh, of uh, um, Mitsu, Mitsu uh, uh, Homo. I can't remember the name, uh, how you pronounce it in Japan, uh, a Japanese uh, bank. Usually it's a Japanese bank, a manufacturer, um, electronics company, you know, all these different little things are all connected together. Uh, and that makes up their... Uh, uh, Kirikitsu model and they all cross ownership. So like, you know, Toyota, Toyota own 20% of the bank and the bank own, you know, 15% of Toyota or more or whatever. It's usually a pretty strong network and they all work together to achieve whatever that goal. And there's like, you know, certain ones inside the, the Japanese, uh, uh, economy that that's, those things are the most important. It's just, it's really, it's collectivization in so many terms, uh, so BlackRock operates kind of in the same way with all of its cross uh, uh, ownerships of all these different corporations, like in an industry. So they own, you know, 5% of everything in that industry. And so they have a substantial uh, leeway or, you know, they have board seats on all these companies, you know, at that level. And they would operate the same way. And they garner certainty that way. Uh, of, of movement and what they're willing to do. And they can, as Larry Finker so uh, caught on Mike saying, enforcing behaviors. And this is, you know, we know this goes to their whole agenda is a behavioral control of the human population. However many of us they want to be 
involved in that process, along with uh, those of us that don't want involved in the process while they're uh, installing in the AI and robotics that they would like to get achieved, plus take down the United States in the process. Because, you know, that's what I mean. This is like a tug of war. And, uh, of course, it helps for them to, you know, have the right puppet installed in D.C. that doesn't have a coherent a mindset and uh, is certain to act the way they want them to. Um, whereas, uh, as uh, Trump, now he's saying the right things now. A lot of people are going to be skeptical. You know, says no CBDC. We're going to deport these people, that kind of thing. And don't get me wrong. That's, I mean, that's the right things to say. Um, that being said, you know, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to actually be able to get in any position to actually do it um, without, of course, causing people great disruption. So that goes back to there's going to be a moment in time when I think there's going to be enough of an opportunity that people are going to have to make a very clear uh, what they're going to do because uh, that'll be your moment to make the right decision for yourself and how you um, and you, you're going to have to be willing to do things that you never thought you'd ever have to be willing to do, but you're going to have to do it. Um, I'm not going to tell you what that is because, you know, that kind of thing, you know, <laughs> they can be misconstrued. But what I'm getting at is uh, you're, uh, you're, uh, if you want to survive, you're going to have to stand for what you stand for, what you believe in, assert yourself, uh, best way you know how, uh, and, and know that that's the best because otherwise, you know, I, it's a choice, you know, either knees <laughs> on your knees or, you know, perish on your feet. Um, and, uh, you know, be active or inactive. That's what it boils down to. You can be, you know, and then right now we're waiting and lots of people are waiting too. And lots of people are very um, aware of what's going on now, I think, at least at certain levels of uh, uh, who aren't in politics, but are, uh, let's just say, uh, they don't run, they don't run in the circle, or even if they run in the right circles, they may have already just decoupled from those circles and decided that they're going to, uh, they see something that makes them think, well, this isn't going well, and I don't want to be a part of this group anymore. They've already made a choice. Hopefully enough of them have made a choice that have enough um, will and a substantial firepower, when I say firepower, have a platform, have the connections, resources, and willingness to work with those of us who are not connected, have limited resources, but we are bodies. Um, you're going to need bodies for this. And I'm not just talking about a few bodies. Is like I said, if you're dealing, you're you're facing against entities with trillions of dollars of assets and resources, and they own the media. We know that, and the media is very uh, compelling for a, a, a group of people. Even the mainstream media still has a little bit of sway. It does have sway over certain groups of people, and of course, that's why they get so upset when social media platforms are wrestled away from them or are successful. And they don't have their uh, uh, nest of pit vipers there to sabotage or hijack this. So, um, for to end it on the 
Um, the word choice of the day, um, seek certainty where you can achieve it. Um, and, you know, be willing to experience a variety of things before then, but know the right moment uh, to uh, fight for your liberty because that's going to be very key to your survival. And by fight, you know, fighting can be it can be thought of in various ways, but certainly you need to be willing to put your um, your best foot forward when need be. So I'll leave it there for now. God bless the United States of America, and uh, God save the world.